0: I'm going to read the uh, portion we've read seven other Sundays previously. This will be the last Sunday we're going to read these verses. First Thessalonians chapter five, verses fourteen through twenty-two. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful that you do speak to us through your word, that you speak in a way that gives us an opportunity to understand at various levels. I pray as we consider these words today, wherever each of us is, that you would speak to us. Lead us further in your way, for your name's sake, and you pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I explained last week why I'm putting together the last half of 21 with verse 22, so I won't go into that, but just to remind you what the words are, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. Paul wrote something similar in Romans chapter 12 uh, which begins with let love be without hypocrisy and then he says abhor what is evil cling to what is good. To abhor what is evil is to despise what is evil or to detest it or to utterly loathe it. Such feelings and thinking come from inside of us and those Feelings, those emotions, that way of thinking powerfully influences how we see and deal with the things that are evil. And I want to say this at the beginning because we're going to come back to this near the end. We are not only to abstain from evil, we are also to abhor or hate what is evil. The other part of Romans 12, which is similar to this portion in 1 Thessalonians, says, Cling to what is good. And to cling is to adhere or to stick to or hold fast to what is good. And then that brings us back to verse 21, the second half, hold fast, as Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, hold fast to that which is good. To hold fast to To something is to keep a firm grip on it, or to hold it so securely that it can't be yanked out of your hands, or it can't slip away ever so slowly, maybe even so slowly you might not be aware of it. Holding fast to what is good may be a one-time decision, words, you may make that decision, I'm going to do this. But it is an action that we are wise to carry out day by day for the rest of our lives on earth. I've talked about this a number of times. I see it in my own life. Whatever progress we make in the faith, in, in living a godly life, in drawing near to God, in putting off the old nature, whatever progress we make, we still need to be vigilant to maintain that progress because it is just too easy to slip back. So why must we hold fast to that which is good for the rest of our days on earth? I want to begin to answer this question by referring to Jesus and his experience with temptation. And then I'm going to follow that example with more reasons to hold fast to what is good by pointing out various evils, which you might think is the opposite of what we should do, but pointing out various evils that tend to pull us away from what is good. So starting with Jesus, after being in the wilderness for 40 days, remember the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness. And during those 40 days, Jesus was tempted by the devil. And at the end of that time, we read in Luke chapter 4, 13, that when the devil had finished every temptation, so we have three in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, there's recorded three temptations of Jesus. The inference is that he was tempted much of the time during those 40 days. There was more than just those three. So after the devil had completed every temptation, he left Jesus until an opportune or an advantageous time. If you look at the three temptations that Jesus endured, he must have been exceedingly hungry, and it would have been very tempting to turn a stone into bread and eat. He knew he needed some kind of notoriety to draw a crowd. It could have been very tempting to jump off the top of the temple and have God catch him before he hit the ground so he didn't get hurt. That would certainly bring notoriety. And he knew that all of this that we see around us was going to be given to him, but it was, by the way, the cross and the devil offered a much easier path. Just bow down and worship me. He said to Jesus, and you can have all of this. So those are some pretty serious temptations, and the moments must have been advantageous to the devil to bring those temptations to Jesus' attention. But the point of all this is, is that Jesus' experience with the devil's temptation was ongoing. It didn't end with the 40 days. And that provides, for me, a clear reason why we need to continually hold fast to that which is good. Because the reality is, the devil may back away for a time. You may have a a short window of freedom from temptations, but he doesn't give up. He continues to look for opportune times to tempt us away from God and toward evil. And you may not be tempted at this moment, but you will be tempted today so what is an opportune time well it depends on your view of life it could be a time when you are discouraged or feeling like a victim or feeling unloved and alone or feeling denied something you want or cheated out of what belongs to you or maybe it's because you've experienced an injustice Or being threatened with the loss of something precious. Or maybe it's a time when you're angry. Those certainly represent opportune times for the devil to tempt us. And I could make the list longer, but I think you get the idea. And my encouragement to you is think about this yourself. What kinds of times, situations, interactions with people open you up to temptation? Because the devil looks for an opportune time to tempt us, it is a serious threat. It's a serious threat to our spiritual health. It's a serious threat to consistent Christian living. And if we are going to not fail, not lose to that threat, not be overtaken, we have to hold fast, hold tightly to what is good, And it's in that way that we can remain godly. Now, the word of God says we will not be tempted beyond what we can bear. But my guess is every one of us in this room was old enough to recognize when we've been tempted, have experienced temptations that we just felt were overpowering. Or we just put it in automatic and we just went with the temptation anyway. We didn't resist. We didn't fight back. We didn't pray for help. We didn't do anything other than give in. That's why you have to hold fast, why you have to cling. Because it is easy to let go and go the other way. Apart from the devil's schemes and temptations, we have our own selfish and sinful inclinations. At least I do. And I believe this about every one of you, whatever you believe about yourself. I believe you have the same issues. We have our own selfish and sinful inclinations, our own passions our own lusts, our own foolish fears, our own expectations that are unrealistic or excessive or be outside the boundaries of godliness, our own greed, our own ungodly hopes that can steer us away from what is good and into what is evil. A particular scripture that's spoken to me over many years comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, 22. And I came upon it kind of accidentally. I was memorizing... Second Peter or Second Timothy, chapter two, uh, verses twenty and twenty-one, and then, as I was looking at the scripture, here's this next statement, and what does it say? Now flee from youthful lusts. You got to stop and ponder youthful lust. What were your desires, your excessive desires, when you were younger? Are they still with you? Flee from youthful lusts and pursue, or we could add, hold fast, because that's what we're talking about today. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, it's real easy to read that statement. It's real easy to memorize it. It's not that long. But what do those words actually mean? What does it mean to pursue righteousness? What does it mean to pursue faith? What does it mean to pursue love? What does it mean to pursue peace? My guess is for each of us, it may have some nuances that are different than for the rest of us. But if we would think that through, we would begin to see what is required to cling, to hold fast to what is good. See, the reality is we're not only fighting against the devil's temptations. Those are real and they do affect us. We're fighting against our own inclinations, our own selfishness, our own fear, our own pride, our own sin. And I know in my own life, sometimes that's more powerful than the devil's temptations. Then there's the matter of money. Money is a force that woos us to trust it instead of God. Money is a force that motivates us to store up treasures on earth instead of treasure in heaven. It's a force that feeds such harmful and evil things as greed, hoarding, stinginess, and the lack of godly compassion for the poor and needy. I guess is all of us have at least read this, but one of God's uh, great complaints against Sodom and Gomorrah was that they did, they did not take care of the poor and needy. I know we think that the only reason God destroyed it for their immorality but that was just part of it. By the way all immorality is selfishness so we should not be surprised that they were too selfish to care for the poor and the needy. The threat of money to our spiritual health is so real that we read in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 8 through 10 and I want to read this if we have food and covering with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money is a force that can certainly pull us away from God and godliness. Beyond the temptations related to money, most of us too easily give in to frustration and anger, which often leads to attacking or avoiding, often leads to arguments or the silent treatment, often leads to unkind or even abusive speech, often leads to manipulation and control, just when we're angry or frustrated, how do we resolve those emotions in ourselves? Often results in resentment and bitterness, and that leads to damaged and broken relationships. I just had a call this afternoon before church on a couple. The wife wanted to change the husband, and the husband wanted the wife to change They were both uh, pretty, pretty fixed on their position. And they were both frustrated and angry with what they've had to deal with. And they've damaged the relationship. And when I recommend that at least one of them start doing what's right, of course, that's not a sellable position. At least nobody really wants to buy that. And so, they quit clinging to what is good and took hold of what is evil. Such things as trials, tribulations, sickness, sadness, loss, and hurt feelings easily lead to distrust of God and his goodness, which in turn produces unnecessary fretting and anxiety, complaining and discontent and in gratitude toward God. It's good that God and I, and maybe just Barbie, know how bad I've behaved because of discontent. Just being discontent. Unhappy with my lot in life, wanting it to be different. Cling to what is good, huh? Then there's the issue of recognition, praise, and fame, which feeds pride, conceit, arrogance, and self-exaltation, all things which move us away from God. When you hear praise, do you fight off pride, or do you just accept the praise and think more highly of yourself? Add to all these things such seemingly minor, minor things as gossip, luxury, Passion, wanting what others have wanting to know more about others than you need to know about cell phones yeah they're they're really helpful they really are but it is amazing how many places i go into and people are on their cell phone and not talking to somebody but doing something that's distracting them from serious thinking about the internet facebook video games tv sports being a workaholic or a perfectionist. How about the felt need to be busy? I'm meeting with a couple that are in serious trouble and one of his issues is he just has to be doing something. He cannot sit still. Well, when you have to be doing something and you run out of good things to do, then what's left? You're going to start doing bad stuff. And he does. If we do not hold fast to what is good, even these seemingly minor things can motivate us to do things that are harmful to our spiritual well-being and damaging to our relationships. My final example has to do with intentional and planned spiritual growth. I've promoted this for many years. Intentional and planned spiritual growth. And I suspect that we all know how easy it is to get so busy with the daily affairs of life that we don't have or maybe I should say don't protect the time necessary to keep growing in our knowledge of God or to continue pondering and meditating on his word or to repeatedly evaluate our thoughts, words and deeds in order to see what needs putting off and what part of Christlikeness. Needs to be put on or to seriously work at loving our spouse and raising our children in a way that attracts them to God and godly living that takes work it takes time it takes thought so my purpose here is not to say or even imply that we don't do anything good that is not my point we do many things good But clinging, holding fast to what is good is an effort that takes work and as Peter says, we want to be holy in all our behavior just as God is holy. So life is filled with varied reasons to let go of what is good, reasons to start doing what is evil and harmful, to our spiritual health, our families, the community, workplace, and our own church. But God in His wisdom calls us to hold fast to that which is good, to make that an intended, intentional, thoughtful process. Hold fast to what is good. Or as it says in Romans 12:9, cling to what is good. Okay, what is good? What, what, is, what are we holding fast to? In my opinion, Jesus summed it up in two commandments Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. One of the things that I realized early on in my Christian life is that I could not love God with my mind when I was living with anxiety if my mind was consumed with something other than loving God. You see, if I loved God, I would trust Him. If I trusted Him, I wouldn't be anxious. I could not be loving God with my strength if I was using my body to do something sinful or using my eyes to look on things I shouldn't look on. All right, I'm bringing this up only for one reason. We we know the scripture, we know this commandment. But have you taken the time to think out What it means in your life to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second thing that tells us what is good comes from Jesus as well. It's to love those around you in the same way and to the same degree that you love yourself. Love your neighbors yourself. Why is this the summation of good? Well, because love fulfills the whole law, according to Paul in Romans chapter uh, 13. You can't do any better than to love the people around you. To love God. You will cling to what is good if you love like this. So let me just give you some examples. All right, In the home... It is husbands loving their wives as Christ loves the church. And it is wives submitting or yielding to their husbands as unto the Lord. Now we don't like to use that second part of the statement because in our era, submission is not seen as even reasonable, let alone rational. I maintain that one of the problems with this statement is that The men hear this in light of what the wives are to do and the wives hear this in light of what the husbands are to do. And neither does what they're supposed to do. And then you have a bad marriage. What do we expect? If I would do what I'm supposed to do and Barbie would do what she's supposed to do, we would love each other and neither of us would let the other one get taken advantage of or unnecessarily hurt or unnecessarily worn out or have to bear more of a burden than was necessary because love would prompt me to protect her and love would prompt her to protect me. This is the way love works. Think of God. This is what he's done and what he does. These two commandments in the home are husbands loving their wives as Christ loves the church and wives submitting or yielding to their husbands as unto the Lord. It is fathers not exasperating their children so that they do not cause their children to feel like they can never please their father and so lose heart. Hmm. And it is children obeying their parents. Well, those of us who are parents, we like that one. But what about the, the one that precedes that? It is the younger generation caring for their widowed mothers or aged parents. In the workplace, it is doing your work as if you are working for the Lord, regardless of the quality or temperament of your boss, serving the Lord. In the community, it is caring for the weak, the widows, the orphans, the hungry, and those who need clothing. Those who need shelter, it is never paying back evil for evil to anyone. It is respecting what is right in the sight of all men. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, it is being at peace with everyone around you. In the church, it is loving one another, serving one another, sharing what we have with one another, praying for one another speaking the truth to one another, encouraging and exhorting one another, edifying or building up one another, strengthening and protecting the weak. Romans 14 is all about the strong, protecting the weak. That's part of loving your neighbor as yourself. It is admonishing, calling to account, and if necessary, disciplining the wayward. It is maintaining the unity of spirit and the bond of peace and growing together into spiritually mature Christ-like believers. That's what this is in the church. Cling to what is good. In your heart and in your mind, it is setting your mind on the things above and on the spirit as opposed to the flesh. It is thinking on and pondering the things that are true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, excellent, of good repute or report, and worthy of praise. It is to be sensible in your thinking. Do you realize that's clinging to what is good, being sensible? Yeah, thinking sensibly, being sober-minded, thinking as Christ thought. You know, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's thinking like Christ thought. It is to be single-minded as opposed to double-minded. It is working for a pure heart, and being humble of heart. It is loving from the heart, serving from the heart, and rejoicing and giving thanks from the heart, holding fast to what is good. These things that I've said only represent a portion of what is good. Clearly, the list I have given you Is far from exhausted because I didn't even touch on such areas as business, clothing, amusements, entertainment, music, and a bunch of other things. All right, my encouragement to you is make your own list. If not on paper, in your mind. Take the time to think this out. What is good? What do I need to hold fast to? Where am I letting go of good to do what is less than or less than good or actually evil? And this brings us to verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. When we know what is good, it becomes clear what is evil. When we know what is good and live up to what we know, we become keenly aware of what is evil. And there is a difference between knowing what is evil and being aware of what is evil. And when I say being aware, I mean even aware of the subtleties of evil. We sat at a table at a New Year's dinner many years ago, it was the church dinner. And we were having a conversation and we were talking about a movie that I really liked. The scenery is just exquisite in this movie. Some of the shots, whoever uh, directed this film, some of the shots are just amazing. Dr. Zhivago. And as we sat there talking about this movie, a lady across the table said, but you know it's about adultery. I had missed the subtlety. I liked the story. I like the photography. I like the way everything played out, but I never gave a thought to the fact that the story was about adultery. Knowing what is good, that's important. Living it out makes you much wiser, much more sensitive to what isn't good. It has been said that when the FBI teaches their agents to spot counterfeit money, they make them study real money. Only real money. Because anything that doesn't match real money stands out as counterfeit. And so, my encouragement to you, to those of you who have been Christians for a time, It is wise to put a significant effort into learning what is right and good. And use the word of God to determine what is right and good. Depend on the Holy Spirit to lead you and teach you into what is right and good. Use your conscience and your intellect to think through what is right and good. Listen to the teachers, your spiritual teachers, in terms of discerning what is right and good. Because the more you know about what is good, the easier it is to spot what is evil. The easier it is to abstain from what is evil. To abstain from something is to voluntarily refrain or hold yourself back, or deny yourself or relinquish your personal right to do what you know is wrong. All right, let me read that one more time. To abstain from something is to voluntarily refrain or hold yourself back or deny yourself or relinquish your perceived right to do what you know is wrong. I want to spend a moment or two on that last statement. Relinquish your perceived right to do what you know is wrong. Have you ever thought you deserve to do what is wrong? Or have you justified doing what is wrong because of the way another person's behavior has affected you? If you have to think about that too long, you probably haven't been honest with yourself yet. Each of us should be keenly aware that we have fallen into this trap. Well, if you've done this, then you have acted as if you have a right to do what you know is wrong. I have justified sinful behavior based on other people's bad behavior. In other words, when I'm honest about it, when I look at it for what it really is, the truth is, I feel like I have the right to do what I know is wrong. And I wouldn't have to do what I knew was wrong if you behaved in the right way. It's your fault. So I'm bringing this up because too many of us too often justify or assume we have the right to do what we know is wrong because of another's behavior, whether it is behavior that hurts our feelings, makes us feel unloved, demands from us what we think is unfair, takes advantage of us, denies us what we feel we are owed, or in some other way wrongs us. I've used this example before, but when uh, I was growing up, I had two brothers, one older, one younger, and the older one hit harder than the younger. And when he would punch me, I would punch him harder back, as hard as I could. And of course, I was right for doing that because he hit me first. I mean, that's the mindset, right? It starts when we're kids. And if we don't grow up spiritually, we bring that same mindset into our adult life. You're going to mistreat me, I'm going to mistreat you. You're not going to love me, I'm not going to love you. You're going to be unkind to me, I'm going to be unkind to you. You're going to say mean things to me, I'll say mean things to you. You're going to cheat me, I won't give you what belongs to you. It's just, it it goes on and on and on. And my only point in this is that this is an area where it's very easy to do what's wrong rather than abstain from what is evil. To take the exhortation to abstain from evil a bit further, I want to add the words from Romans chapter 12. And I want to do this because this deals with two sides of this issue. Abhor what is evil, Paul wrote. To abhor evil is to despise evil, to detest it, or to utterly loathe it. This means we are not only to abstain from evil, which we can do through the use of self-discipline, but we are also to abhor evil. You see, abhor comes from the inside. Abstinence is something we do on the outside. One example of abhorring evil is Phineas, who upon seeing a fellow Israelite bring a Midianite woman back to his tent for sensual reasons, took a spear and went into their tent and pierced both of them through the body. His actions not only took a stand for righteousness in the camp of Israel, it stopped God's plague on the sons of Israel for participating in, and the evil revelry that was going on between Israel and the Midianites. Another example of abhorring evil is Joseph's response to Potiphar's wife. He chose to flee, even though what was being offered promised to be highly gratifying to a young man of his age. I believe we gain a greater understanding of how we are to deal with evil when we put the statement in 1 Thessalonians 5:22 with the statement in Romans 12 verse 9 and though they appear to send the same message and I've already said this one calls for an outward response and the other calls for an inward response which reveals itself in an outward response for example in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 22 which says to abstain from every form of evil, The outward response is to use self-discipline to not do what we know is wrong. In Romans 12.9, which says to abhor what is evil, it is a response that begins on the inside. We have feelings, we have emotions about this thing. And then we don't really need self-discipline, we just stay away from it. Now, I believe that if you can get honest with yourself in these next couple minutes, that you can see exactly what I'm talking about. My guess is there are evils in your life that you abhor. You actually have feelings about them, and you're not attracted to them at all. You abhor those things. So they aren't even a temptation to you. But there are also evils that you really like. Well, you may not admit you like it, but you go to them over and over again, which is an indication that you like them. And if you're going to stop, you don't stop because you abhor them, you abstain because you use self-discipline not to do them. And it isn't like one is better than the other in the sense that we stop doing what is evil. Both approaches work. And we want to commend both approaches. But I want to make this clear that what you abstain from, you are more easily tempted to do. What you abhor, you're not likely to be tempted to do. Therefore, if you can nurture If you can nurture an inward hatred or revulsion for a particular evil that you currently at least have some fondness for, you will greatly decrease or even remove your temptability in that area. And in my experience, admitting to God that I have loved things that he hates, asking for his help to hate what he hates has been one of the good moves in the direction of actually becoming the kind of person that hates it. All right, let me finish up with these words. To hold fast to that which is good requires learning what is good and clinging to it with all our might. To abstain from every form of evil requires voluntarily, intentionally, thoughtfully, and persistently holding ourselves back or even fleeing so that we do not do what we know is wrong. This may feel too hard at times or too personally costly. Why, if I show love and the other person doesn't, I'm getting ripped off. Personally costly or unfair. How come it falls on me? Why do I have to be the good person here? And yet, in spite of how it may feel, saying no to evil is an essential part of saying yes to doing what God says is good. You won't say yes to good until you say no to evil. And when you hold fast to what God says is good, You are walking on the path of life. And that life, Jesus says, is abundant.